to Ecclesiastes 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. We began chapter 10 last week. We went from verse 1 down to verse 15, and today we're going to finish out the chapter, verse 16 down through verse number 20. And uh, we're still in a chapter that is very, uh, very proverbial. It is Proverbs, really, uh, comparison and contrast and parallels. And, and so we're basically just titled the message, Various Principles of Wisdom, because you'll notice that some of these sections of Proverbs, they're not really um, organized in, in a way that maybe we would organize something, uh, but that's kind of how life is, right? It's not always organized. It doesn't always hit us exactly as we think it should. And, uh, but Solomon relays some theme through here. There is some connection, uh, I think, that flows through it um, that would be good for us to note and uh, study together. So let's begin in verse number 16 of Ecclesiastes 10. It says, Woe to you, O land, when your, child is, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility. And your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter." As we've noted through the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been given a lot of wisdom passages, wisdom from Solomon's observations, as well as direct applications he encourages as he's teaching along. And I think we would all agree that to not live with wisdom is to live with foolishness, right? And that was the summary of the last passage uh, in this text, in chapter 10. So uh, he's been tackling this issue of wisdom, wisdom has been the immediate contrast in the last really two chapters. Chapter 9 has really been communicating, be wise. While chapter 10 has really been ushering in, don't be foolish. And so there's a direct application for us. Now it may be easy to look at someone and say, don't be foolish. But the truth is, in order for someone to not be foolish, they need to be taught what foolishness looks like. They need to be taught what wisdom looks like. And that's kind of what he's been doing for us. You know, it's pretty easy for me to say, kids, don't be foolish. But they're not really going to process that, really. They're, okay, what do you mean by don't be foolish? Well, don't jump off the top of your bunk bed onto the ground, right? That might be foolish. Don't run to the road. Uh, We've got to teach them exactly what it means. And, and so that's what Solomon's been doing through this passage. And this is one reason I think uh, wisdom literature is so important, because it really hits home to us. It's very practical. It's very down to earth. It really meddles, if you will, into the uh, details of our life, right? Uh, wisdom literature tends to convict as it, if, as it dives into the personal matters of our life. And, and so we need to seek to not only hear wisdom literature, but we also need to apply these truths into our life. And in order for us to truly apply them, we have to recognize that there's areas that we probably lack wisdom. There's areas where we need to glean. There's areas where we need to grow, to be wise, Charles Spurgeon rightly said this, and I love this quote by him. He says, The doorstep to the temple of wisdom is the knowledge of our own ignorance. You've got to chew on that for a minute, but it's, real, it's true. The, temp, the doorstep to the temple of wisdom is the knowledge of our own ignorance. We first have to admit we need to know something in order for us to grow and learn something and grow in wisdom. And so in our previous passage, we saw the folly of fools, various aspects of life. So he's continuing on this passage of wisdom, 
And we can see some contrast here with foolishness as well. But notice with me just one heading tonight, and we'll look at uh, four principles that he brings out. We see Solomon's continued instructions of wisdom. His continued instructions of wisdom. And the first thing I want to point out to you that he brings to our attention is that a land or a country is blessed or burdened by its leadership. A land is blessed or burdened by its leadership. Now, earlier in this chapter, he's already tackled a little bit about the issue of rulers and leadership and kings, uh, how important it is that, that, how that, how that foolish authorities, they do damage to, to society. Verse, verse 5 and 6, I'll just read this to remind you. He said, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. And so we looked at the foolishness there is that folly is in high places. It's in places of authority, while those who maybe have wisdom and have uh, competence and something to really offer society, they're, they're neglected. So he says that's an evil he sees under the sun. But now he brings us into another aspect of the importance of wisdom and competence in positions of authority, especially that of the king. Notice verse 16. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. So verse 16 and 17 are a contrast to each other. There's a woe, and then there's a blessing. And so he starts out with the woe. What does woe mean, right? We see that quite a bit in Scripture, and, and uh, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? I think you know the answer to that. Woe indicates great sorrow and distress, okay? In Scripture, it's indicative of great distress upon someone, a people, or a nation uh, for something that might come upon them due to wickedness or God's judgment, so we see several instances in Scripture where woe is pronounced in a very negative way upon people and nations. For example, God says to Israel in Isaiah 5.20, He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's a great woe to them, a great distress, a, a denunciation to those who do that very thing. It's a danger. Jesus pronounces woes during His ministry, quite a lot of them. Uh, if, if, if you note, he, he pronounces woes on the religious leaders who rejected Him and, and for their hypocrisy. But He also pronounced woes on towns who rejected Him, though they saw His mighty works. He says in Matthew 11, in verse 21, He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in you, that have been done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So it's a great woe. It is a great woe to hear the gospel and yet still reject Christ as Lord and as Savior. It's a great woe for them who saw the mighty works with their own eyes and absolutely rejected Jesus as their Savior. It is a woe to us to hear the Word of God and neglect it in our lives, to just put it off as if, okay, I heard it, I'm just not going to really regard it, though. That is a woe. We have to be mindful of that. So while there's various contexts we could apply this woe to, Solomon applies it to the land whose king has two detrimental aspects to his leadership. All right? And the first aspect of this woeful king is this. It's when the king is a child. 
it's a woeful thing on a land. When the king is a child, it's a woeful thing on the land. Now, what's he mean by the king being a child? Well, the term child here, it's indicative of the king being immature or irresponsible, all right? It does not negate the fact that a leader could be young, but yet still be mature. In fact, we have some examples in Scripture of some pretty young leaders that God used. How many of you remember how old Josiah was? I know you know because I put it in your notes, right? You can read the verse. I'm the teacher that makes it easy for you. All right, I try to give you the answers ahead of time. Josiah was only eight years old when he began to reign in Judah. 2 Chronicles 34.1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Now, that's kind of hard for us probably to fathom, an eight-year-old being placed in a position of authority of that nature. I mean, just to kind of give you an example, Jubilee turns eight next month. Imagine someone about her age being placed in a leadership position. Um, that's hard for us to fathom. As much as I love her and think she's getting smarter every day, there's no way I would put her in charge of you know, major things. Uh, it wouldn't be wise to do that. But regarding Josiah, this was the reality uh, of their kingly lineage, how they passed on kingly lineage, but also of God's providence in using Josiah at that day and time. Now, with this in mind, Solomon, he's not talking about, when he says when a king is a child, he's not talking about age per se, although that may apply in some circumstances. He's talking about their maturity. And even Solomon, if you go back to 1 Kings 3, I'll read this passage with you together. 1 Kings 3, even Solomon, when he is taking on the mantle of king in Jerusalem, he considers himself in that matter, that he's not really worthy of that position. 1 Kings 3, and verse 7 through 9, let's read this passage together. The Bible says, And now, O Lord, this is Solomon speaking to the Lord. He says, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. Notice his language, same thing. Although I am a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people. So Solomon recognizes this even before he becomes officially king or really he's communing with God about this. He says, I'm a little child and who am I? Who am I to take on this mantle of king? Now, scripture doesn't explicitly state how old Solomon was when he became king. Uh, but most scholars believe him to be based on other texts and doing some math and David's reign and when his son took on mantle to reign that uh, Solomon was 20 years old when he became king over Israel. And so we know Solomon, what did he ask for? When God said, ask me of what you want, he asked for understanding, wisdom. And God granted him that. That's the exact thing that he needed because he considered himself not knowledgeable, not understanding enough, not wise enough to be in such a position. So he felt himself unqualified, but God made him qualified when he gave him wisdom. So that's what we see as a great detriment it's a great woe to a land when a king is a child, when he's immature uh, and irresponsible to be in that leadership position. Now, this happens and has happened often in history to nations and rulers and oftentimes is a mark of God's judgment on a nation. And for example, he says to Israel in Isaiah 3 and verse 4, 
He says, I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. Now, that doesn't mean that a literal baby is going to be placed on the throne. He's talking about immature, irresponsible people. I'm going to give you all what you ask for. And that's essentially what has happened in many cases throughout history. But notice, that's the first woe. But there's another aspect of this woe upon a land, and it's here. When your princes feast in the morning. When your princes feast in the morning. Now, I had to think on that for a moment because... Don't we all like a good breakfast, right? I mean, what's wrong with eating breakfast? We're eating in the morning. Well, there's nothing wrong with eating in the morning. He's not saying a king can't have a good breakfast. This actually refers to a ruler who has no control, really, and lives a careless lifestyle even from the morning. Feasting was often feasting was associated with partying and often drunkenness. So it's as if the, the, this prince... Because he's a child, he's irresponsible, he's immature, he gets up in the morning and just continues on what he was doing the evening before, acting irresponsible, acting carnal, acting uh, in a very fleshly and and, and irresponsible manner. So so you see that it was associated with indulging and drunkenness. That was a nightly activity in that day and time, and it still is today, right? So a leader who does such things in the morning clearly shows he's not fit for leadership, he brings a great woe to the land and those who are under his leadership. Now, Isaiah references and kind of gives an, a really picture of this kind of a person. Isaiah 5, 11 through 13, notice this. Again, woe, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine in their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their, their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. You have a correlation there, how the land is being uh, treated, how they're getting the, the, the bad end of this because of the leadership who is... Who is who is doing great thing, terrible things that are bringing woe. So this negative to the king is contrasted here against the positive to a good king in the next verse. Look at verse 17. The contrast here, he says, Happy are you, O land. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So you notice instead of woe is the land, he says, Happy is the land, or blessed is the land, is another word you could use. Blessed is the land unto this king. Now, this king, he says, is the son of the nobility. What's he mean by that? What's that refer to? The nobility here refers to the free or noble ones. It means that this king is someone who comes from a noble lineage and is noble himself. He has great qualities about him, good character. He has high moral principles. That's what noble means. He has these qualities that make a good leader. And so truly, what every land or kingdom needs is noble leadership with righteous principles. That's what we desire. That's what we should want, right? As After all, Proverbs 28, 12 says, When the righteous triumph, there's great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. That's just the nature of what happens when righteous is in leadership and wickedness is in leadership. So if only our own nation could recognize this, what do we see in our own nation? Wickedness is on the rise. Wickedness, depravity. And what do we see? 
it is only bringing about the demise of our culture in various, various ways. The push of drag queen shows and all of these ideologies that are rising up, wickedness increases, it only brings woe to the land. And part of the reason is because the leadership also aligns with that very thing. So that's part of how it's all connected. But on the opposite side of that, what do you see? Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So, so this is what Solomon's putting forth, that the happiness or blessedness of a land is largely impacted by the king or leader, his character, who he is, what his principles are. He goes on to say with this good king, your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. That's the contrast. The immature, childlike leader, he feasts for the purpose of drunkenness and at the wrong times, in the morning. Whereas this man, he feasts for strength in the evening and not for drunkenness, but rather for strength. And so the point Solomon's making here is that wise leadership is grounded in mature leadership, and the leadership of a ruler will either negatively or positively affect the land or the kingdom. And there's great application in, in this for us today. This truth that we see here, it should affect how we view those who hold office and leadership positions in our own nation. That's, that's how the Bible brings this out. It's plain to us that there's never going to be a perfect candidate, all right? But we can never say that the Bible is silent when it comes to politics. There's this common misunderstanding that, well, politics should just stay out of the pulpit. Tell that to our founding fathers. That was not the case, all right? So what we do, what our responsibility as Christians, the best of our ability, and I say that with, with emphasis, the best of our ability, we vote Christian principles and policies that will be good for the people of the country, good for the land. Now, that can be very hard sometimes because sometimes either side doesn't have a good candidate, do they? Uh, but we're forced to make a decision based on conscience and based on principle according to the Word of God, and we do what we can with that. But the principle Solomon lays out here, it's his observation, but it's also wisdom for a nation, for a people, and what, how, we, how we live as citizens. Letter B, all right? Not only do you see the effect of leadership, all right? That's one thing he's been bringing out. A land is blessed or burdened by its leadership. Letter B, laziness has great consequences. Laziness has great consequences. You'll notice verse 18, his next principle here. He says, through sloth, the roof sinks in and, in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Now, there's a couple words here we don't commonly use, but I think we know what they mean. The word sloth, the Hebrew definition here is literally extreme laziness. That's what it says, extreme laziness. Now, if you want a picture of that in action, look up the animal that is called a sloth. Anybody ever seen a sloth? I mean, there's a reason they're named that. I don't know how all that works. Adam named the animals, and it's tied together in God's providence. Sloth and lazy, extreme laziness. But it, we went to the zoo one time, and I saw this creature called the sloth. And I thought, am I in a slow-motion film, right? They're so slow just in climbing the one branch and moving and eating. and the, it, You can see the connection. They're sluggish. They're very drawn back in, in, in how, they, how they operate and how they live. And, and so that's the imagery here. 
of this lazy person. This is how an extremely lazy person conducts themselves. They sluggishly move along in whatever they're doing. They put off what they know they ought to do because they don't feel like it. They're lazy. They don't want to do it. So the other word Solomon uses here is indolence. It refers to being slack or idle. And idleness is is inseparable from laziness. Those who live in idleness do so because they're lazy. (laughs) Idleness and laziness, you can't separate the two. They are intertwined together. Now, as you read through wisdom, literature, you're going to find that the lazy and the idle, they are always fools. They're fools. They're foolish in how they live. Why is that? God created mankind to work, not to sit around and do nothing. He created mankind to labor, not to be lazy. Now, there's some people that think that work is part of the fall into sin. It's not part of the fall into sin. Work was given to us before the fall into sin. Adam was charged by God to keep and protect and watch over the Garden of Eden. He failed in his duty to do that, but nevertheless, he was given work. He was given work, all right? And so when we look at with this, we see that laziness today, it's often viewed very lightly as if, oh, that's just not that big a deal. But you understand that from Scripture, it is actually a great sin. It's not a, not a little issue. It's a big issue. I like this quote by Thomas Brooks, Puritan of long ago. He said, idleness is a sin against the law of creation. God created, God creating man to labor, the idle person violates this law, for by his idleness, he casts off the authority of his creator. Idleness is something we should avoid. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have times of leisure and rest. There's a difference between leisure and rest and idleness and laziness. We need to distinguish between the two. But Scripture has a lot to say about those who are lazy and what laziness leads to. And he points out just a little bit here in this text. If you look at verse 18, what's he say? He says, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. So this is an obvious neglect and refusal of proper maintenance of a person's home due to their laziness. Their homes, back in that culture, they weren't like today's homes, okay? Uh, Roofs at that time, they weren't like slanted. They were flat. They were more like a patio, all right? They were usually constructed with some cross beams overlaid with some tree branches and then covered with mud and straw and chaff mixture. They make some kind of plaster that that made it more solid where they could go up there. They would spend evenings up there. They would uh, even put booths up there for for one of the uh, feasts in Israel. And and so what you find with this is that it was a very important place in the home in that ancient culture in Palestine. Now Solomon points out that the lazy person here, this sloth, his roof sinks in and it also leaks. Why? Because he's not maintaining it. He's too lazy and idle to do so. He's just neglecting it. He's not putting the effort into his home. Now, Solomon speaks much to this very end in Proverbs. I want us to read a couple passages regarding this issue of slothfulness and laziness. Proverbs 24, 30 through 34. Let's look at that first. Proverbs 24, verse 30 through 34. Notice what he says. He says, I passed by the field of the sluggard, by the vineyard of the man lacking sense, and behold, it was overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, 
and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Notice the result of this sluggard, this sloth. Decay and ruin are coming to his field and walls. It's all grown over. The walls are falling apart. He's so lazy, he won't do it. He won't fix it. He won't take care of what has been entrusted to him. So he observes this lifestyle of this man, and he gets instruction from it. He's looking at it. He's getting instruction. Laziness, seen in continual sleeping and laying around, brings poverty and ruin. That's why he brings up this issue of sleeping. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. And the end result of laziness is poverty and ruin and ultimately want. You want what you don't want to work for. Again, we see this in Proverbs 26. Look at verse 13 and 16 of Proverbs 26. One page over probably for you in your Bible. Look at verse 13 through 16. He says, The sluggard says, There is a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. As the door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Well, you see some basic principles about the sluggard here, don't you? The first thing he points out, the sluggard says, there's a lion, there's a lion. In other words, he's making absurd excuses for not getting out and doing what he should. Now, if there's a literal lion in the streets, I'm with the sluggard. I ain't going out there either, right? But... This is, this is written in a, almost a humorous, ir- ironic form of language. He's making this excuse. I'm not going to go out there. As the door turns on its hinges, you look at the door back there and it swings on its hinges. He says, so the sluggard just turns upon his bed. He stays there. It's where he dwells, right? He's lazy. That's where he wants to live. You go a little further. The sluggard buries his hand in his dish. It wears him out to bring it. He's so lazy, he doesn't even barely wants to feed himself, right? I just can't identify with that. I mean, I'm so hungry, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll kill an animal and skin it and cook it right now if I'm, I'm hungry enough, right? But that, that's another proverb that Solomon says. He says, the lazy man won't even roast what he took in hunting. He'll just kill it and leave it. He's so lazy, he won't even take care of the meat, right? Another thing about this lazy person, he's smarter than everybody else. He's smarter than everybody else. You tell, you tell him, you need to do this, you need to do that. He finds every reason in the world why he can justify not doing that very thing. His laziness controls him, governs him. Oh, the detriment of laziness and idleness. And so in Solomon's context, we see this. It very well could apply even to the ruler in the kingdom. A lazy ruler will cause a land to suffer because he won't do what needs to be done for the land. His kingdom begins to leak with idleness is what it boils down to. But I want to point out that this principle goes far beyond just the immediate houses of that day. Or, or home maintenance, right? The principle of laziness here. We should guard against the temptation to be lazy and idle in every area of life. Not just the physical maintenance of our homes. We should labor to cultivate our Christian life, our walk with God, our worship of God. That doesn't happen automatically. It does take effort from you. There's labor involved in that. You have to get up, read your Bible. You have to pray. You have to get in your car and come to church and worship, right? And what is one of the excuses for that? Well, I just don't feel like it. Oh, I'm just so tired, right? Laziness. Laziness. 
You see, it takes work on our part, effort on our part in walking in the Spirit and walking out, living out the Christian life. Romans 12, 11, Paul says to the church, Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Don't be slothful in your zeal for Him, but rather serve Him. Secondly, we should labor to cultivate our marriage. We should labor to cultivate our marriage, loving and caring for our spouse. You understand, strong marriages don't happen automatically. They take effort and work. A lot of marriages suffer because one or the other or both are lazy and don't put any effort into their marriage. If you're doing that, you need to recognize it. It will bring havoc to you. It only leads to ruin in one way or another. It takes effort from both sides. We should labor in parenting our children, raising them in God's truth and guiding them into life with wisdom and and good character and work ethic. All of us parents, we know that raising children, it ain't a cakewalk, is it? (laughs) It's work. It requires labor. It requires effort on our part. We should labor in giving our best in our job, working hard as to the Lord and not unto men. God's name is worthy of you giving your best effort, even in your job and whatever it is He's called you to do and be out in the world because you represent Christ everywhere you are. Everywhere you are. And the opposite side of that is if you're lazy at your job, you just might lose your job. That's the, that's the end result of that equation. So, so the bottom line here is from Solomon is that laziness in whatever area it may be, it leads to ruin. There is no good outcome to laziness and idleness. That's the plain truth. Letter C. Letter C. Next principle. Money has significant effects. Money has significant effects. Solomon takes us in this next statement, which may seem kind of puzzling at first, maybe even out of place. But he says in verse 19, Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. As you read through the Scripture, you'll see a connection between bread and wine, meeting the needs of man's sustenance and enjoyment. I'll read you a couple of references here. The psalmist said, he wrote of the Lord in Psalm 104, 14 and 15, he says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth fruit from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Very plain. Wine and bread have their purpose. Solomon previously said in this book, in Ecclesiastes 9, 7, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. So, while the bread and the wine have significant benefit for man, the focus of the passage is actually on the last element, which is money. This saying is a three-part saying. The first two are kind of parallel to each other, and they lead to a punchline which is this last statement. He says in this last statement that money answers everything. Now, Solomon has briefly mentioned money in this way earlier in the book. Ecclesiastes 7.12, he says, For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now, what's he saying with this? He's saying it takes money to live in this world. It takes money to take care of things in this world that come up. See, a person must make money to be able to take care of their needs, take care of their unexpected emergencies, and even enjoy the wants that they might have in their heart. 
you have to have money to go to the grocery store and bring food home, don't you? You can't go in and just walk out without it. You've got to have money. You must have money to pay for the brake job that comes up on your car. It's not going to be free. Money's the answer for the brake job. You've got to have money if you want to enjoy your favorite hobby. If you want to get out on the lake, you've got to have money to buy a boat or rent a boat. doesn't come free, right? Unless you know somebody. Then, then, then it's good to know somebody with a boat, right? Money answers those things when you have it. If you don't have money and you're unwilling to work for money, you're going to find yourself eventually living under a bridge, not, under, not able to take care of your own needs, especially not your wants. It makes life hard. That, again, is one of the detriments to laziness. Solomon said a slack hand causes what? Poverty. But the hand of the diligent does what? Makes rich. Means he works hard. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. So the wise person here recognizes the need for money to live their life, and so he works hard to gain it. He doesn't even have the first two without money. Can't buy bread or wine or have wine without money. So that's really the main point here, that money is needed both for our provision and our enjoyment. Now, we could view this also in the broader context of the ruler again. Some apply all of these verses to the ruler, and I can see how they do that. But the ruler of a kingdom has bread, wine, and money for the purpose of reigning over his kingdom, to answer the needs of what is needed for his people. That could be another application. But let me point this out to you, okay, remind you about this. What this does not mean is that money is the chief end of our satisfaction because that is the failure of the world's perspective is that if I just have more money, I'll be happy. If I can just have more, I'll be set for life, right? Solomon has already expounded on the fact that money and wealth and possessions and even pleasure, they don't bring true satisfaction to life, do they? You can be content and happy and joyful and not be rich not have a whole lot of money. You go back and read chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, and chapter 5, verse 10 through 17, he expounds on these very things. So money and wealth have their dangers and warnings along with their provisions and blessings. Here's just a few of them. We are warned not to love money. It should not be our love. It should not be what consumes us. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.10, "...for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil." It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You notice he doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. He says the love of money. There's a love factor in the heart that drives someone to this. Another, another good warning here. We are not to put our trust in money. 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What's he saying? Don't put all your trust in your big bank account. Because tomorrow it could be gone. Economy could trash. Markets could fail. We don't know what the future holds. But there's one thing we do know. All of our hope is in God, no matter what our status is in this world. All of our trust is in Him. So we're warned, don't give your trust to money. We're also warned not to worship or serve money. Matthew Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, but he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That is really a 
matter of worship and life that some people pursue after is money. So money, understand, should not be our idol or our end goal, but it is a tool that God has ordained in creation for sustenance, for provision, and even enjoyment in our life as He provides. Charles Bridges rightly comments here and says, the real sphere of the usefulness of money is the object and use of it. When we hold it as stewards, when the two great ends are combined in one, the glory of God and the good of our fellow creatures. I think that's a great way to summarize that. So the main point here, with wisdom, we should seek to have provision for our needs in life and the enjoyments of life. It's not a sin to have enjoyments, but it's a sin when those things have you. It's a sin when it becomes our God and our idol and our only life pursuit. But money, understand, it is part of the process of provision and enjoyment that God has given. Letter D, and lastly, guard your tongue. Slander travels unknowingly. Guard your tongue. Slander travels unknowingly. We see this in the last verse, verse 20. Solomon says in this verse, Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. What's he mean by this? Can birds read our thoughts? <laughs> will they tell the king how we truly feel about him? Maybe a parrot. They're the only ones I know that can talk. But I don't know how, how, much, how far that goes. That's not quite what he's talking about. Let me explain this. There's a great principle here regarding the protection of what we say with our mouths. The first principle here is this. Don't curse the king or curse the rich. Both of these parties represent those in power and authority. This is rooted in God's law. Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight: You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, ultimately, we've got to understand, God's the ultimate ruler of His people, is He not? He is. He's the sovereign, even over the earthly kings. And that shows us that when it comes to the earthly authorities, that we have to understand that God's the one who put them there. Even say a nation voted him in, you understand God's providence governs even the roll of the dice. Daniel said of the Lord in Daniel 2, 21-22, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. Now, as much as we may disagree with a leader's positions and policies, to curse him is a serious matter. It's a serious matter. Now, there's been a common saying going around and during this last administration. You've probably heard it. It goes like this, let's go, Brandon. Anybody ever heard that? Do you know what it means? I'm not going to repeat what it means. I'd get fired. Can't do that. It's a code phrase that curses the president currently in power or in office. Now, I want you to understand that no Christian should engage in such speech. And yet, many on that movement that chant that, all are doing that under the banner of Christianity. Well, we love God and country, but yet they're cursing the one God has put there. Now, I understand there's a lot of tension when it comes to politics and the administration before us and the administration right now, but none of that changes the principle of what God says here to the Christian. None of that changes that. We have a certain behavior that we're accountable for. 
So it's one thing to call a leader to repentance for his wickedness and his bad policy that does affect the land in a terrible way, but it's entirely another thing to blatantly curse the one God has put there in power. We ought not to do that sort of thing. So there's a danger here in cursing those in power. Notice there's, there's two things I'll point out about this. To curse him in your thoughts, which is what he starts out here with, to curse him in your thoughts, what does that do? That reveals your heart. That reveals your heart. Our hearts should not be that of cursing the king, even though maybe it might be challenging sometimes. I'm sure we've all had our moments. Man, why in the world did so, you know, he do this and him do that? What a dumb policy this is, right? We ought not to curse him. We can disagree with it, but cursing him is a more serious matter. We have to understand that in our thoughts, in our heart. When a king or a wicked ruler is bringing trouble to the land, it makes us angry. And we should have a righteous zeal. We should have a righteous zeal and, and, and anger for God to be honored and his word to be upheld in the land. That should be our heart, but it's not a reason to curse the ruler. Even if, if, if given the opportunity, we may call upon leadership to repent by the authority of the word of the living God. Because I don't have any authority in my word. I don't have any authority in my opinions. But I'll tell you who does have authority. This right here. The word of God holds authority even over the president of the United States of America even over the king of whatever nation or country you may claim. You see, if given the opportunity, yes, we may call them to repent and give them reason using the authority of the word of God. But at the very least, what we need to do as Christians is to pray for those in leadership, even if they are foolish and corrupt. Paul said to Timothy, under the very godly reign of Rome, right? Being facetious here. It wasn't a godly reign, it was an evil, wicked reign. But he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, First of all, I, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Who's he mentioned here? For kings and for, and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every this reveals the proper heart we ought to have in God's providence over rulers over us. Second aspect here, to curse him with your voice may actually get your words, get you in trouble with your words. Solomon says, a bird of the air will carry your voice. How many have ever heard, this, heard that little saying, a little bird told me this? What's that mean? It doesn't mean a parrot flew up on their shoulder and whispered in their ear. It means somebody told them something. A little bird told me this. Someone may hear what you say and transport that all the way up to the leadership. Now, this would especially apply in the days of the king where, they're, where, where a monarchy, they have to shut down any opposition to them, even in those that are next to them. So if so-and-so is complaining about the king, it's going to get back to the king, and he's got to get him out. A lot of times it meant death in some of those pagan cultures. But this applies beyond just national level, to lower levels of our own positions and authorities. It's probably not a good idea to be cursing your boss or your company that might get back to your boss and get you in trouble. We've got to be careful with our words. And Titus, Paul says to, to Titus regarding this in teaching the people of God about this same issue, 
Titus 3, 1 through 2, he says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So the bottom line here is that wisdom would have us to be careful with our words and not speak slander against those who are over us. We need to have the proper heart in line with the Word of God and the proper actions in our words. So the various principles of wisdom here, they give us many great needed applications for us today. And so we need to recognize the great need for wisdom in these areas of life under the sun and apply them to our life. Not just to hear them, but to apply them and live them out in our life.